RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 2, Episode 20, Part 2, Character Relationships Memo from David Gerald, November 25th, 1986. Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. And welcome back once again to The Trek Files, all you Star Trek fans, you background fans, you lovingly pronounced canonistas, and yes, you Trekophiles with an F. Once again, we're going to stay in this... Um, early gestation period for the next generation, the late 1986 time when the little little gang of three, four, five folks were hashing out what exactly the next generation characters and format, everything that we'd come to know about the show and some things that would quickly evolve was to be about. This week, we're going to stay with uh, some early discussion about the early character relationships, a memo from David Gerald from November 25th. Um, take a listen <laughs> to maybe the vaguest issue before all of the early day creators, and I'll be right back with this week's guest. Remember, you can find our document of the week right there on Facebook at The Trek Files. Troy is still unclear to me. I'm hoping that this discussion will help us work out the areas of uncertainty. Part of the problem I'm having with Troy is a question of alienness. Vulcans have a profound control of their emotions. Klingons have a nasty and brutal nature. What is it about Beta Zeds that is unique and interesting and alien? Troy's telepathy is obviously an important part of it, but I think her telepathy needs to be the demonstration of something deeper. Otherwise, she's just a human being who can talk without moving her mouth. And Sherry Lewis can do that. I'm amazed in these early day creative memos from the roots of a series like Next Generation when the co-creators would all raise issues they think might be a problem. And yes, indeed, <laughs> they're really smart because they do indeed become a problem later on. Getting a handle on what Troy's character would be and what a beta Z is and what empathy and telepathy and how that looks and plays out in, in 48-minute American TV drama in the 80s and 90s is something that took a good long time to get get to get one's arms around as a creator. And joining me this week uh, again is someone who uh, spent her time getting her arms around as a creator on Voyager for three seasons. Lisa Glink, welcome Hello. back, Lisa. Happy to be here. Yes. So everyone, Lisa, yes, did indeed. Uh, she's the on on uh, behind such episodes as Innocence and Blood Fever on Voyager. She also pitched and sold Hippocratic Oath before that. On DS9, uh, she wrote the Borg Invasion 4D story from uh, Star Trek The Experience in Las Vegas, the much-lamented, much-beloved <laughs> late uh, experience. She worked on uh, – she, she was executive story editor on Earth Final Conflict, another Roddenberry production. Many other series. Uh, she was a co-producer on Martial Law and Roswell. Uh, novelist these days. And aside from working with the Much Love Animal Rescue here in L.A. in your spare time, she's also working with Chase Masterson's Pop Culture Hero Coalition. So, Lisa, glad to have you back. And, um, boy, you're a fan of Next Generation, as are we all here. 
uh, and came to Star Trek The Next Generation, right? Yes, that was my uh, my entry drug. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so here's David Gerald in his early batch of character pushbacks internally. Now, mm-hmm. no, no one outside of six or eight or nine human beings on the planet knows what Next Generation is at this point. And they're already uh, trying to flesh out these characters from the first Bible. They've only been at it about a month. And... Uh, I don't know. How does it, does this strike you as very prescient here about all the problems that we're going to have with Troy and a Beta Z character? Well, I hadn't thought about the specific problems of having a telepath on board. Uh, if you think about someone who would know what other people are thinking or at least feeling, you know, if we had somebody walking around like that now, everybody would avoid them like the plague. You know, I you would have no secrets from this person, and I would not want her to know what I was thinking at all times. But, of course, this is supposed to be in the evolved future where mankind has no interpersonal conflicts, which kind of begs the question, why do you need a counselor? That's true. That's true. Well, it's all those other alien races, that they, all those other uh, species that we encounter, I guess. I, it's one of those things that's, you know, it was such a sci-fi, a cool sci-fi concept that like so many other things that were thrown out initially for the next generation, some stuck, some didn't. But it's, it's, a, it's a long road <laughs> getting from something on paper that looks good to fleshing it out in real life. Well, to make her an empath is just vague enough that you can kind of stretch it any way you want to go. You know, she can sense things, general things like anger, or this person is hiding a secret, or this person is hiding a secret that happened to them when they were 10 years old and their mom used to hit them. I mean, you can have it be as specific as you want. Well, and, you know, famously, we got through the pilot, uh, pain, (laughs) you know, and uh, what? Much joy and gratitude. I mean, you know, it became quickly apparent that there are going to be limits to this. Yeah, I mean, you would have uh, Picard talking to somebody on the view screen. He was yelling at him, and she'd say, I sense anger. (laughs) Yeah, she just kind of had a thankless, especially sitting there on the bridge. She really did not have an awful lot to do. Right. Well, you know, I remember even in the early days that you would think, well, she's a counselor. Individual people need some attention. But if if they early on found some tasks for her, like languages and translating and, and if not literal empathy, maybe cultural empathy and maybe a cultural ambassador. I mean, yeah, maybe she's the chief, dip, chief diplomat. You know, exactly. she's in charge of first contact with new races or something like that. Exactly. But the but the point is, and Marina is very famous about saying this on the record, in hindsight, we now know. I mean, she doesn't appear in four episodes. She does was, anybody notice? <laughs> not really. <laughs> well, some of those episodes are a little bit of a train wreck. Anyway, the first, there's plenty else to notice without noticing she's gone. But... It is true that they did not, have, especially when they they threw the pilot out there and then went, oh, we have to reel this back. We have to dial this back. Now what are we going to do with her? And then it was this, um, you know, this race to find out how to flesh it out. But what's amazing is here's these two pages from David Gerald's first thoughts on what they had wrought so far. And he says, Troy's unclear to me. Yeah. And, and, and the she things he's grappling with, yes, are things that... You know, did they find some things never were what you said? What do you do with that? I mean, I think of Bester. I think of Walter mm-hmm. Koenig's character on you know the telepaths in mm-hmm. Babylon Five were almost the secret police. I mean, you know, they were the, well, yeah, that's what they would the be. Internal. Again, that's why I, I think that if she was actually a telepath, she would be the least popular person on the ship. Well, it, it, this whole this whole notion of being an unformed character, we talked a little bit about this in one of your past visits with us. That as they sat down to cast the role, they didn't know what a Beta Z looked like, 
what it would be. They just needed something that was, they were just casting for an exotic in, in casting Agent E's. Right? Which means not blonde, right? Right, which means not blonde, apparently. Because they actually had famous story of Denise Crosby making it you know, all the way down to the finals of auditions reading for Troy and Marina Sirtis reading for then Macha Hernandez mm-hmm. as a, you know, oh, she's Greek, but I guess she can pass for Hispanic. Well, you know, not blonde. No, not blonde. And at some point, someone's saying, let's swap them and have them read for each other's roles. And, of course, we wound up um, <laughs> having Marina through the whole through the whole track. But suddenly, you know, they cast Marina. Oh, that's what a Beta Z looks like. That's what a Beta Z, right? Yeah, but they never really gave her... Yeah, as I think it says in the memo, anything as distinctive as, you know, the Vulcans that are, you know, logical, you know, are Beta Zeds emotional? I mean, what what is their their difference from humanity? Because she was basically just another human. One color pupils. That's what they have. Okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that enough for you? Isn't that enough for you? No, it's, you know, he says, how do telepaths perceive each other, yeah. much less non-telepaths? We must seem like blind people and are emotional cripples to them. Um, and I think you know, elsewhere in the memo, he talks about her her possible relationship with Data, who would be the one person that she could not get a read on. And maybe that would be even a relief. I mean, I can't imagine what it right. must be like for somebody who's telepathic or even empathic to walk around with all of these other people's thoughts and feelings just crowding out on your mind. I mean, it must must drive you crazy. And to be with Data, who gives you nothing like that, would kind of be a relief. Well, you know, forget perfect humans. I guess we need perfect Betazoids, because how else does... I mean, they did get into this a little bit. Tam Elbrun? A little bit. Who was the troubled Betazoid. Yeah. What What if you had a Betazoid who couldn't handle that balance of, you know, keeping everyone else's thoughts out, or feelings out? Yeah. And it's an amazing question. If you're doing a novel, if you're doing a feature... Oh, that would be great, Yeah. That would be one thing, but to do 178 episodes, 176 episodes, and grapple with how this plays out every week. And again, especially in a, like a pseudo-military kind of battleship in which the way people feel is not necessarily your prime consideration. You know, you need a security officer because people are shooting at you every once in a while, but do you really need a counselor on the bridge? Well, now, we, it was the late 80s. And there was a big effort. <laughs> it's one of those things that, like, it was the 80s. It kind of excuses everything, the, doesn't by, it? By the 90s, people were all saying the next generation is so 80s. There's carpet on the wall and a counselor on the bridge, a therapist on the bridge. But people will point out and say, look, we have a suicide rate that's astounding with our own modern-day returning veterans and mm-hmm. troops. We have all kinds of issues that are, you know, for years have just been, you know, PTSD, just sweep it under the rug, man up, buck up, woman up, you know, whatever. Yeah. And the idea of having mental health issues addressed forthrightly in a service, even as, as uh, pristine as Starfleet, you know. Uh, but there's, there's a lot to say for that, but how are you going to handle that? Well, especially if sort of the premise of the whole universe is that humans have evolved, and so they wouldn't have things like PTSD, presumably. In the future. Or addiction issues. Or <laughs> addiction issues. Right. Or, or on down the line. Yeah. But look at this. His, his memo of questions that they have a gentle tease in between the two, which I think Troy and Picard. They set the backstory up of Troy and Riker as mm-hmm. having been former lovers. And 
I think the question, though, was how they played that. Of course, we know how it played out. But depending on who was running the show, yes. <laughs> who was running the ship, that went back and forth. And the two actors famously always kept it, that, that intimacy, it, even from a distance, that yeah. the, the familiarity always yeah. kept that there, which kept the relationship alive. But at this point, they were still playing with exactly what it be. In fact, uh, they were having, famous, a, a, they were basically uh, thinking about having a present relationship. Right. Not even that they were exes, but that they were currently involved. Right. Which gets back to that whole relationship on the on the ship and families or mock families, pseudo families. David here, and again, the the new ensemble concept of casting and having big cast shows. Hill Street Blues broke mm-hmm. the paradigm. L.A. Law was another one. They're still very much being affected by that as TV creators. And he's comparing what a Riker-Troy relationship might look like to Joyce Davenport and Frank Frillo, who mm-hmm. was the lead nominal lead and his right uh they were uh, police and, and a da poli- you know police detective and da and it could it's, have been a, such a unique relationship though in that you know how do you have a relationship with somebody who knows what you're feeling all of the time i mean it sounds like maybe a good thing but also maybe a bad <laughs> thing and that he would never be able to hide anything from her ever well, we're, you know, we're, we got into this a little bit with writing young women, if, if Wesley had been a, a, a young woman character. But it's, bad, it's enough of an issue writing a young man character. There was so much chaos in the writing staff the first yeah. two or three years getting any kind of continuity on all these characters. I mean, you know, a lot of the cast did not settle down. I mean, Data, Brent Spiner's Data, Worf was a... Was a was a breakout character, all of them. Sir Patrick wasn't Mm -hmm. Sir at the time, but he would be eventually. (laughs) We now know why. He was able to ride the chaos and make something of Picard. A lot of the rest of the cast, nothing against them, but it was hard, the material they were handed, to have some continuity. It seemed like it was finally emerging. Yeah, if you you have a different personality every week, it really is kind of hard to get get a sense of, you know, the, the heart of the character. And especially for a... A character who didn't have a specific ship function. Well, she did, but she didn't have a a plot oriented ship function the same way that like a security officer would, or you know the the pilot would. And so, always trying to kind of jam her in there, it must have been really frustrating for her. Well, yeah, and she was she was literally living on the bubble. Marina was. Yeah, yeah, and she knew when she wasn't. When you get written out of four episodes, yeah. and you're the only one that's happening to. Yeah. It's not like it's equal opportunity. So, you know. uh. But like we were talking about with uh, families, you know, it would have been nice to maybe see her dealing with people off duty, you know, maybe even in 10 forward a little bit more that people could have confided in her. I mean, the way that they did in Guinan sometimes, and maybe she should have been more like, you know, kind of the bartender figure in a way. Yeah. Well, and that well, then there, then you get into that whole issue of oh, now we have a bartender. They're just getting a handle on her counseling, and now you've got a bartender to counsel people. Exactly. You, know, like, you never saw Troy and Guinan in a scene together until she lost her empathy, I believe. Yeah. It's like we can't have the two of them in a scene. They'll overlap. They'll you they'll know, basically serve the same function. They'll, yes. they'll strike each other out, right? But again, the bottom line: you've got these big issues of empathy, and what does that look like in a dramatic situation and playing out with an ensemble of people, down to the specifics of. Not, not just what is a beta Z, but uh, her specifics, even to the point where he's where he's suggesting, hey, does does Troy have a child? Do Betazoids get married? Which we famously get into very soon. Yes, but they just had such a complete lack of of, of 
figuring out what the you know the devil in the details. Yeah, I mean, what would have been point. interesting about her having a child would have been how do Betazoids raise their children? Maybe to deal with the cacophony of all of these other people's thoughts and feelings all the time. I mean, that would have distinguished the character and kind of made that alien race a little more specific. Of course, it would have been born and then within a year been suddenly look human four years old or well, something. Well, beta do that. <laughs> and Klingons. And <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> and, every other and many humans. Any half-breed, any, any mixed species. Yeah. No, I, I again, the fact that in November of 86 here, David is, is uh, raising these issues that wouldn't be resolved for, for several years. In the glass half-full side of things, it's amazing that not only did Marina managed to triumph with the character despite what she was handled and the chaos on her bridge Mm -hmm. that um you know and overcome that being written out of four episodes first season and she was she was a little paranoid about it but coming back so strongly and they did come back and they gave her it's an interesting show the retread of the the phase two script the child Mm -hmm. but they did come out of the gate second season and try to try to beef her up and give her some duties and we and we saw language and we saw we saw some of the cultural you know, we find, what is the third or fourth season? She finally gets an office and actually gets to counsel somebody yes. individually. And she even gets a mother. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it's just fascinating to look at these early thoughts on Next Gen and see that even as they grappled, even as they groped their way along to what the show would be, uh, they had a lot of insight. They did. They did. They, in fact, saw the stumbling blocks and did their best not to stumble. And and knowing as you are from the television world, how many other series would have been allowed to have three or four years to get a handle on on a major character well, or more than one? Uh, I mean, that does happen to all kinds of shows. I mean, this was a very high-profile show, obviously, because it was Star Trek. But a lot of shows kind of stumble about even getting a handle on their main characters. And most often they get canceled. Well, I was going to say, having that much... You said coming into Voyager... Uh, when you pitched, the one thing you knew you had a, a little bit of a safety blanket of was the... This. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Voyager, we assumed, would run for seven seasons. And so when I came on in season two, I might personally get fired, but the whole show wasn't going to go away. And that was really very comforting. Right. You didn't have to worry about the superstructure falling down around you. you exactly. Know? Because a lot of my TV writer friends, you know, would have a great gig on a show with people that they really liked. And then, boom, it was gone. Right. Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own. Their own. Well, Boof, thank you for taking a chance on coming by the Trek Files. <laughs> thank you for having me. Hopefully we won't be Boof <laughs> anytime in the future. And I'd love to have you come back again, Lisa. Yes, that would be great. The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All our documents are available at facebook.com slash thetrekfiles. For more great podcasts, check out podcasts.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47 at larrynimichek.com. That's me. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.